More recently, Rupert has extended his interest in radical otherness, history-making, and globalization to ethnographic work on what he terms primitivist tourism and the cross-societal encounters and transformations this involves. His many articles include topics such as first contact tourism, new forms of village settlements and history-making, treehouses, linguistic taboos, and incomprehension. He's working on a second book, concerned with these primitivist tourist encounters. Today, his lecture is called Primitivist Tourism and Anthropological Research, Awkward Relations. So, Rupert, I'm very excited and looking forward to your lecture, and I welcome you to the podium. Uh, Thank you, Katie, for... A very generous um, introduction, and I'm enormously grateful to the anthropologists at LSE for the privilege of um, giving the Malinowski lecture this year. Is that a good level on the sound? Okay, thank you. Uh, and uh, very grateful to all of you for the privilege of sharing some uh, ideas uh, on the subject that Katie just outlined. A useful path into this lecture subject is a tension in the film Cannibal Tours, which many people here have undoubtedly seen. The film mainly provokes feelings of dismay toward the European and American tourists and their ways of relating to Yatmal villagers in Papua New Guinea, such as their stinginess with money, their pointing of cameras, and their condescending stereotypes out of touch with the villagers' real lives. But another feeling viewers might experience is discomfort with the filmmaker's own camera work, While several times his camera lingers at length on scantily clad young female tourists, there is also a strongly voyeuristic quality to the full film's non-sexual photography and sound recording of tourists. And the camera lingers awkwardly on Yatmo villagers looking uncomfortably back at the filmmaker. His photography adds to the confusions and humiliations swirling around tourists' presence. Do we viewers, while cringing at how foolishly the tourists watch and categorize Yatmo people, also cringe a little at our own tourist-like ways of watching and categorizing them? Cannibal tourist-style tourism has expanded across recent decades, and there has been a further dramatic explosion of TV programming portraying such travel encounters to mass audiences, such as the series Tribal Wives that included a Trobrians episode. Anthropologists often note that their field stands in a relation of charged affinity and antipathy with tourism in general. But the avoidance relation is more acute in the case of the subgenre of tourism documented in Cannibal Tours. This type of tourism easily attracts a feeling of being anthropology's evil twin and the tourist's repugnant others uh, because of the tourist's motivating investment in a fantasy stereotype of primitive humans, which many anthropologists find both familiar and wrong. Adorno quipped that one must have the force of tradition in oneself to hate it properly. Anthropology has a long-running, complicated, but close relation to the ideological framework of the civilized and primitive. This relation's latest phase consists of centrally defining our discipline around disavowal and critique of that ideology, even as we operate in a world structured by the same projects of domination that gave rise to it and a world structured by the ideology itself. So there are strong reasons for the hatred. Yet my hypothetical story of the Cannibal Tours viewer calls up another anthropological intuition, namely that encounter with primitivist tourism offers the chance to participate a little too lazily in the essentialization of an essentialization. 
tourists other Korowai by projecting exotic stereotypy onto them, and anthropologists other tourists as doing so. I've been doing research since 1995 in one of the world's most iconic primitivist tourism destinations. I'll try the keyboard. Korowai people of Indonesian-controlled Papua are internationally famous for their tree houses. They have appeared in about 50 television shows and been host to some 10,000 tourists from 40 countries. In this lecture, I select out one area of a larger study of these tourism encounters, namely patterns of anthropology being inside my object of study. I'll look ethnographically at ways that in my research process, I've constantly experienced tourism participants relating actively to anthropology as a knowledge profession or to my own practice of it. There's by now a well-established genre of reflexivity of the form anthropology and X, where X is some object of study, political force, and or mode of knowledge with which anthropology coexists. And the focus of reflexive discussion is the myriad alignments and disalignments between anthropology and X that disrupt any would-be idea of anthropology as a knowledge position frictionlessly separate from the world it seeks to know. In, if in many areas of anthropological work, awkward is the new rapport, the genre has extra prominence for my colleagues in the anthropology of tourism, who have published literally dozens of careful meditations on varied intersections of anthropological and tourism positionalities in our fieldwork. I'll be following their tracks in much of what I do here. One point of the genre across all areas of anthropological inquiry is a certain repudiation of Malinowski's mythical scene of the, the ethnographer, capital E, and the natives, separated by a profound epistemological and social gulf, in his case aligning, too, with the divide of civilized and primitive. At the same time, the genre further advances Malinowski's practical ethic of ethnography, small e, in the sense of an effort of subordinating one's ears, eyes, voice, and mind to connections of order in other people's activity. While the genre can unfold on many levels and serve many purposes, I'm most attracted to how research subjects' ways of dealing with anthropologists as epistemological and social irritants index structures in their lives bigger than those individual researchers or their discipline. In my contribution to the genre tonight, one level of my goals is to use ethnography of the tourism-anthropology relation to work with and against the issue of exoticizing primitivist stereotypy and anthropological revulsion. I seek to look straight at that issue in some of its blinding intensity while also settling it into a broader field. Thus, one part of my presentation will confirm your worst suspicions about the circulation of a certain popular idea of anthropology as an adjunct to the tourism. But I'll also report data about tourists that defy the simplest impulses of anthropological distinction and antipathy. And I'll report Korowai patterns of relating to me that also might destabilize what we initially think we know about anthropologists, tourists, or their relations. All this is partly a resource for working toward an ethnography of ideologies of civilized and primitive, the context in which they flourish, and other forms of action and consciousness that coexist with them. Within that garb, the more fundamental level of my goals is to stage a conversation about identity categories and practical encounter. Categories are an old concern. Across my discussion, I'll work with some near truisms of anthropological thought about them. These themes about categories and encounter strike me, though, as important frameworks into which to transpose the data I discuss if we want to get to the core stakes in patterns of interplay between anthropological and tourism positionalities. 
I'll begin with Korowai perspectives and specifically a pattern many other anthropologists have experienced of being categorized as a tourist. The near truisms visible through this pattern include that categories often have a robust spectral life of their own in collectivities, independently of reference they appear to be about. And categories are historically particular to collectivities who use them. They're defined and used relative to historical conditions of the categorizers and relative to historical conditions of encounter with what's categorized. Korowai relate to me through the tourist category on many different practical levels, but the elementary one I'll discuss here is verbal and mostly occurs when I talk with new acquaintances for the first time. Uh, When I asked one woman whether she had ever previously ported tourist baggage, for example, she replied, no, tourists don't come here, you're the first. Another man answered my questions about his past tourism experience by saying, we haven't done a tourist feast or you coming and talking. Another woman was telling me about a relative who had temporarily left the Korowai area with an Indonesian tour guide, and she referred to where the guide resides as, quote, the place you guys live. I asked her where she meant. She said Jayapura. This is the city on the north coast of Papua where most tour guides are based and the one city all Korowai are most certain to have heard of. To this specific woman, it was a reasonable hypothesis that I, the guides, and the other tourists are one collectivity who all live in that place together. Another man I had just met said spontaneously to me, uh, they're regularly going to the Mahail clan place and all places everywhere, but not our place. I was confused about who he meant, and so I asked him, to which he replied, bright-skinned people, just that one came to our place, but he didn't pay fishing tackle. You should come to our place. Striking here is not just the blunt identification of anthropologists and tourists, but the hints that these Korowai persons' ideas of both me and the tourists are interestingly peculiar and perceptive. We see, for example, that one Korowai typification of my activities is something like bright-skinned foreigner who sits around talking and gives or pays fishing tackle. But it's the category tourist, as it occurs in these statements, that especially indexes a larger intertextual network of Korowai talk about this typified figure and a distinctive history and culture that has supported the emergence of that figure as such a prominent resource of interpretation. One important aspect of Korowai people's historical conditions, elliptically reflected in the quotes, is the preeminence of actual international tourists in Korowai experience of long-distance strangers. Korowai number about 4,000 persons, live spread across 500 square miles of land in the middle of New Guinea, and were not in any regular interactions with long-distance strangers until a Dutch Calvinist mission was active at one corner of their land in the 1980s. The missionaries left in 1990, and there was little Indonesian state-funded activity in the area until around 2010. For two decades, the international tourists and media professionals who came to photograph tree houses were the most salient long-distance strangers in most Korowai people's lives. This unusual situation is reflected in broad patterns of Korowai terminology and discourse for new strangers at large. Since at least the 1970s, Korowai have used a pre-existing word in their language meaning zombie to designate all new long-distance strangers they meet or hear about. In this way, the original zombie word has developed a distinct second sense as a general designation for social foreigners. In the first instance, this single all-purpose ethnic epithet has been used in a fashion lumping together diverse Indonesians, East Asians, Europeans, and and non-local Papuans who turn up in the area in different roles. 
Yet there are many patterns of use of the category zombie foreigner that imply its prototype to be whites, who can nowadays also be singled out by an innovative Korowai compound word meaning bright-skinned people. In the 1990s, meanwhile, the new word tulis was borrowed into the Korowai language from Indonesian. For many Korowai much of the time, this category tulis is interchangeable with the category white people, and both of these are again prototypic of the category zombie foreigner at large. Yet even as tourists were for long the most common type of long-distance foreigners ever meetable in person by many Korowai living dispersed across their forest landscape, for these same persons, brief meetings with actual tourists might occur only every few years. So another aspect of the tourist category is that it circulates vigorously among Korowai as a focus of generic type-level concerns and discussion at or removed from direct interaction with actual tourists. In tourists' own languages, the word tourist describes a transient role. But for Korowai, the category tulis is an ethnic group. The foreigners are obviously already tulis before they arrive and remain tulis after they go home. Korowai used the term tulis in close parallel to their use of names for neighboring ethnolinguistic groups that it would be conventional in English to write with a capital first letter. Similar tendencies toward lumping of foreigners in one ethnicized grouping occur in many other tourism destinations. The tendency reflects not only the transience and thinness of interactions between hosts and visited people, but also visited people's skill at inferring broad conditions of visitors' lives from small bits of evidence, and the actual uniformity of the tourist permanent personal characteristics at the broad level and cultural, of cultural contrast that most matters to the hosts. The Corway word tulis is what I translate as tourist in certain of these quotes. When new research interlocutors call me tulis, this reflects that tourism has been a big activity on the landscape and anthropology has been small. My main fieldwork activity is often typified by Korowai as, quote, talking, but tourism is a more robustly named practice than anthropology, and that vocabulary of tourism makes good sense as a means for getting a grip on me, given also that much about my body, habitus, and economic repertoire fits the Tulis category's stereotypy. The content, the content of the foreigner category that Korowai select or project for attention has many layers, but the economic repertoire is its core. The basic image of Tulis is that we live in cities where we consume an abundance of articles purchased with unlimited su supplies of money. Our ready-made food is just there rather than being produced by labor. This ethnographic area exemplifies a further anthropological near-tourism about identity categories, namely that the unit of their order is less a category as such, its content and boundaries stable across contexts, but rather a categorizing act as a relational effort of self-other distinction and an effort of evaluative sorting out of good and bad qualities of being or action. These qualities of being or action may be the deeper categories people are interested in behind other surface category forms like personae. Or to state another near-truism, categories index social relational goals. In acts of categorization, people often are seeking social paths of self-other connection or separation that would, help, that would help them get where they want to be in evaluative hierarchies. The Korowai stereotypy of foreigner tourists as living by an economic system of unlimited access to ready-made consumables is not an object of detached contemplation. Thinking about that figure amounts to grappling with a crisis of frustrated desire for access to the tourist condition. In Korowai speech, the intimately contrasting opposite to the category zombie is human, or simply people, Dealing with the ethnically exotic identity of the Tulis, 
also means touching and shaking the now destabilized ground of this collective us identity category of the human. When Korowai assimilate me to the tourist category, this experimentation is part of a project of getting into transaction with the tourist's admired economic life. As the quotes exemplify, the category uses are embedded not only in a condition of having limited social and communicative access to the distant tourists themselves, but also in a local geography of different kin networks living far apart on their own patches of land, feeling left out by comparison to others, and acutely feeling they lack political means by which to draw visitors to them across the decentralized landscape. A related cluster of truisms that are regularly illustrated by the interplay between tourism and my fieldwork uh, is that categories are applied as much in how people act or transact towards someone else as in what they call someone else. And further, categories are fronted towards someone as often in the mode of an experimental inquiry or question as that of an assertion. And further still, alignments between a category and a person that are being tried out can shift very rapidly, even in quite fleeting sequences of interaction. For example, in a conversation much like the ones I've already quoted, I asked one man whether his clan had ever put on a, quote, tourist feast, which is a thing. Uh, He answered no, but then right away asked if I wanted one, to which I answered no, which he said was fine. He, he He added that his clan had recently put on a human feast, meaning a feast for Korowai hosts and guests rather than tourists, And then he lamented, uh, why are foreigners shying away from our place? We're saying foreigners should go to us. So in that sequence, initially, I thought I was doing some anthropological interviewing about tourism. He understood that inquiring about a topic is not separate from doing it. Uh, He experimented with applying the tourist category to me by offering to sell me a feast, but took my demurral in stride. And then he shifted back to his own kind of conversational frame of narrating about tourists and the frustrations of relating to them, though still likely with transactional subtext somewhere in the background of what I might be able to do to help. A more regular form of the same pattern has involved Korowai inquiring about whether I might be not a tourist but a tour guide. Almost all tourists are accompanied by a male Indonesian national who works for them as a guide. A small portion of tour groups arrive also accompanied by a non-Indonesian tour leader, sometimes from the tourist's home country. Korowai call all these guides by the Korowai word for head, following a wider new usage of head to designate any authority role of telling other people what to do. Korowai borrowed this way of using their word for head from a prominent Indonesian language speech pattern, but they have expanded its usage far beyond its Indonesian use. They have promoted the idea of head authority rules as the paramount sociological form of urban foreigner society, and the internal differentiation of tour groups into guides and clients was a first domain through which they came into fascinated interaction with authority relations as this alien mode of social order. Korowai, who at different times were first learning how tourism works, have initially inferred that it is guides or heads who order tourists to come to the Korowai place to begin with, in addition to directing their activities locally. Korowai focused centrally on the social system of guide and tourist in practical reasoning about tourism and their possible relations to it. 
For my part, probably more than 100 times across my fieldwork, different Koroi persons I was getting to know have inquired, hopefully, whether I might bring tourists later. In effect, they wondered if I might take up the role of guide. Even my closest acquaintances, who know that I'm not well integrated in actual tourist lives, have routinely urged me to send them tourists. So to many Koroi, good anthropology would be an anthropologist bringing tourists. Another telling pattern has been widespread Korowai application of the guide concept to my relation with a specific individual. Korowai today use the word head not just to refer to non-Korowai professional guides who visit with tour groups, but also to a small subset of Korowai men who regularly partner with Indonesian guides in arranging groups' local travel. So a Korowai head or guide is a person, a young man typically, who translates between Korowai and Indonesian for tourists, just as Indonesian heads translate between Indonesian and English. Besides referring to a guide as the head of a specific tour group, specific pairs of Korowai men and Indonesian guides are sometimes described as reciprocally each other's heads in reference to their pattern of regular cooperation. Since my first field stay in 1995, I've been closely associated with a friend and research assistant named Wyap, shown pictured here. During my most recent visits in 2000 and 2011, people routinely referred to Wyap as, quote, your head when talking to me, meaning effectively your tour guide. Uh, This was supported by many aspects of our practices, including that he and I regularly traveled around to different Korowai clan places as a social unit. Also routinely, speakers refer to me as Wyop's head, such as by using the expression, your head, to refer to me when addressing him. So one import of this small pattern is, uh, again, that it involves categorizing me as a tourist and relating to my activities through the tourism template, if sometimes with a wry grin. But uh, at the... But while the category head is highly marked as a social form of the urban foreign social order from which I come, there is a noticeable kinship-like ring to the possessive and even reciprocal character of head relations. In focusing on head roles to model who foreigners are, Korowai partly apply their own relation-focused approach to knowing people and mediator-focused methodology of social troubleshooting. In my own case, YUP stands out as an intermediary through whom information or transactional access could flow in a wider puzzle of how people could relate to me. Not just with respect to YUP, but the whole new occupational subgroup of Korowai tourism specialists, I should also mention my frequent feeling that the practical activities of these heads has some similarities to my work. The Korowai tour guides specialize not only in ethnographic knowledge of foreigners' conventions and travel requirements, but also inquiry on the Korowai landscape. In the most elaborate tour practices, these Korowai tourism specialists are charged with traveling many months in advance to prospective clan territories where a tour group will be hosted. They may initially have no connection to those places, little little understanding of who is who, and linguistic difficulties with dialect differences. Many of them are talented political observers and communicators who sensitively absorb news and information relevant to trying to bring off the complicated project of hosting a tour group on a politically divided local landscape. Okay. In the interest of time and contrast, I'll now jump from Korowai practices, uh, Korowai perspectives, to some ways tourists put together anthropology and tourism. (coughs) I mentioned earlier the stomach-churning antipathy that many anthropologists experience uh, toward the kind of tourism I study. 
But if there's an avoidance relation between anthropology and these tourists, it is asymmetric, with anthropologists feeling a need for distance and tourists often happy to get closer. The same primitivist ideological orientations that make anthropologists dislike this tourism broadly structure tourist attraction toward anthropology or a certain idea of it. Tourists who visit Korowai originate from dozens of different European countries and settler colonies, as well as some Asian countries. Most practice white-collar occupations, and many hold advanced degrees in fields like medicine, business, education, or the sciences. Korowai trips are more expensive than visits to other places in Papua or many cognate destinations worldwide. Some tourists are extremely wealthy, some are shoestring travelers, and most are in the middle. Their class locations and their interest in primitivist travel mean they, know of, they all know of the existence of anthropology as an academic discipline. But some have more substantial biographical connections to it. For example, one British investment banker who has traveled to the Korowai area four times completed an undergraduate degree in anthropology at Durham in the 70s. In my meetings with him, he cited the fieldwork of Malinowski and Mead as models for what he would have wished to do professionally if he had been studious. But he also cites those two iconic fieldworkers as models for his actual tourism trips. Another UK resident tourist with a career in journalism recounted to me having taken classes taught by specific anthropologists here at LSE during her undergraduate studies. An American woman who works for a software company speculated to me that her travel desires had resulted from her otherwise indulgent father prohibiting her from studying anthropology at university. She said, give a cookie or else it will become a Sunday, in reference to how that early thwarted interest in anthropology connected to her or later passion for travel to the Korowai area. More common than university study is for tourists to look at, collect, or read anthropological books on their own. One man who visited the Korowai area in 2003 had read Tree's Tropique while on a previous trip in the Amazon. Tourists who make repeat trips to West Papua generally have small collections of professional anthropological books about Donny or other people of the region. Some have found former missionary Garrett Van Enk and linguist Lawrence de Vries's Oxford University press book, The Korowai of Irian Jaya, Their Language and Its Cultural Context. A very small fraction have found my own journal articles or my academic book, uh, which lacks the obvious search term Korowai in its title. Across such intersections, sometimes the category anthropology is a blunt proxy for an idea of adventure or of the primitive, and sometimes it's a figure for special forms of knowledge or understanding. This latter idea of anthropology as better tourism was invoked, for example, by the same uh, American tourist whose father had not allowed her to study anthropology uh, when she compared herself to another tour leader when she started guiding herself Uh, by saying to me that, quote, my brand of tourism is different, it's a little more anthropological. The linking of anthropology to adventure and primitivity can be exemplified by promotional material connected to the very earliest commercial tourism in the Korowai vicinity. One of its innovators was a Swedish guide who had already been taking trips to the coastal Asma area far downstream in the same river system. In the mid-1980s, he led five trips to, quote, the unknown Kombai and Korowai tribes, These trips were marketed through a German travel agency, and one print catalog included this passage. In the Asma interior, we still find tribes who have still not even been explored by ethnologists and about whom no books have yet been written. Those willing to accept the harsh conditions can experience adventures that we think are today impossible when the expedition group has the luck to find an unknown village, to meet people never previously in contact with people outside their jungle, or to take part in a feast of which an anthropologist can only dream. 
One of our recent trial groups participated in such a feast as the first ever representative of the Western world. Not even anthropologists have been able to participate in such a feast. About 100 Korowai from various distant villages turned up for this feast. So in this promotional text, anthropology is surely a figure for primitiveness, specifically in the mode of uncontacted removed from global economic, political, and cultural institutions. An anthropologist is a limit figure of a type of Westerner who specializes in being places that other Westerners are not involved with. To exceed what anthropologists have done is a measure that one is doing the very best kind of tourism in the sense of making contact with an object that is more extremely outside the tourist's home social system than the object's visited by other tourists by virtue of never having been visited by a Westerner, not even an anthropologist. So across this material, we're seeing and uncomfortably feeling, perhaps, the figure of anthropologists circulating as a spectral, stereotyped other, and even desired self with a life of its own. Michaela de Leonardo, in her work on the robust stubbornness of restricted stereotypes of what anthropology is in American popular consciousness and media discourse, speaks of this basic image as the trope of the pith helmet. The sub-varieties of this figure she outlines includes the anthropologist as technician of the sacred or as last macho raider, depending on whether his role of intermediary to the exotic aligns with the elements I've termed special forms of knowledge or understanding or the element of adventure. While classroom teaching and other concrete past and present anthropological practices do have partial causal links to this robust stereotypy, It bears emphasis that the category of anthropology circulating here is dominantly shaped by mass media processes and public predisposition more than direct contact with anthropologists' activities, as DeLeonardo also documents with some frustration. The lines between popular and academic continue to be permeable. The direct impact on public consciousness of anthropologists like Malinowski and Mead has been great, and Malinowski had no small role in the rise of the pith helmet figure. But movies like Avatar or the Indiana Jones franchise have vastly more force in shaping a public idea of anthropology. And among visitors to the Korowai area, while a minority of tourists have had episodes of direct engagement with academic anthropologists, travel literature and popular primitivist photography and television have been vastly more influential. The Swedish guide leading the trips advertised in this brochure, for example, when, was in his own life choices much more influenced by reading and meeting the travel writers Sten Bergman, Eric Lundfist, uh, Jürgen Bitsch, and later Tobias Schneebaum than by academic anthropologists in any form, just as tour clients most commonly trace their inspiration and expectations to sources like National Geographic. These mass media processes are a little like the processes of Korowai talking with other Korowai about tourists in the absence of tourists. This vigorous circulation of a figure in other people's conversations is where the generic type-level robustness of the figure gets produced, reflecting categorizers' own needs and orientations. While anthropologists in this framework are an adjunct to the much more important category of the primitive, the primitive in turn is part of the constellation with another category, civilization. The label primitivist tourism is my shorthand means of trying to keep in view the basic point that the tourism I study is centrally motivated on tourist side by their model of a world historical contrast between two human conditions, the contemporary civilized and the archaic primitive. Bruner and Salazar have drawn attention to the enormous contemporary influence in cultural tourism of what they term outdated models formerly promoted by professional anthropologists. The primary model they identify as having such an afterlife is what Bruner calls anthropology's discarded discourse of presenting cultures as functionally integrated homogeneous entities outside of time. 
But I would go further back. A dominant popular anthropological model of human diversity among global publics today is social evolutionism, developed by anthropological scholars in the late 19th century and last held to be accurate by a preponderance of them in the early 20th. In the form it now widely circulates, the model is schematic and abbreviated and may owe less to the evolutionist theories of the specialist intellectuals than to the broad typological categories for thinking about human difference that those intellectuals shared with wider publics, categories that also run through the writings of Malinowski and contemporaries who were moving away from evolutionism proper. The popular model today centers on a Manichaean contrast between two ultimate temporal poles and an idea of teleological directionality to the primitive's disappearance. In earlier times, this directional movement of history was evaluatively virtuous, whereas in some areas of popular consciousness today, there is a romantic reversal of the ranking of primitive and civilized on certain dimensions, with primitive humanity figured especially virtuous in such areas as harmony with nature, spirituality, and social or expressive integrity. But the broader character of the Manichaean contrast and incompatibility between world historical types is the same. Tourists who visit Korowai routinely use the specific word civilization to refer to that which Korowai are outside of. And the most prominent concrete criterion for being outside of civilization is lack of imported consumer goods. Thus, their category civilization is something like what many academics would speak of as capitalist market integration and state formation. A slight parallel to Corway processes here is that we are seeing again the truism not only that categories work in constellations, but the categories are closely linked to projects of getting to a better place. One category's appeal may be its utility as a detour by which to work with the relational desires and difficulties presented by another category that is the more important focus. For Korowai, anthropology sometimes snaps into categorical shape in the image of a potentially helpful adjunct to the erratic tourist. And for tourists, anthropology sometimes snaps into categorical shape as a potentially helpful adjunct to the erratic primitive. As De Leonardo's label technicians of the sacred signals, on the tourist side, anthropologists are specialists in bridging the Manichaean civilized primitive divide. It may be that the idea of a mediator is appealing even because the primitive is desired to be ineffable and sublime, not really knowable directly itself. More prosaically, the supporting figure of anthropology adds just another surface to the overall hall of mirrors making up the ritual process of a tour through which an idea of the primitive and sacred value of encounter with it is made persuasive and movingly present. One source of this ritual efficacy is the coherence that emerges between many different sensory and discursive levels of the tour experience, all of them in different ways reflecting the core idea of the trip. Dean McCannell influentially posited that tourism in general turns on a dynamic of staged authenticity, Under modern conditions of extreme social divisions of labor and differentiations of consciousness, people pervasively expect the world to be composed of disparities between front-stage false appearances and special but hidden backstage truths. Tourism is organized to afford tourists experience of themselves as gaining access to a hidden authenticity behind and beyond an earlier state of being cut off from the hidden truths. We could say that what tourists seek in Korowai is the backstage of humanity at large. McCannell has also succinctly characterized how tourists' affinities for anthropology follow that model. About Ed Bruner's fieldwork working as a staff to a package tour in Bali, McCannell states, having a famous anthropologist as your tour guide, having him explain your experience to you in terms that go beyond and beneath the touristic representation is staged authenticity par excellence. 
A travel writer for New Yorker magazine even passingly posed anthropologists as expert meta-arbiters of the staged authenticity system, providing not only a feeling of the revelation of the backstage of humanity, but also adjudicating whether the authenticity is real rather than merely staged. So commenting on his own possible first contact experience with neighbors to Korowai, he writes, quote, I am not an anthropologist and was not equipped to judge the authenticity of this encounter. I knew nothing about these people, yet the experience felt real, unquote. In any case, part of the reason it makes sense to tourists that I would exist when I approach them in the Korowai area or in their home countries and part of the reason talking with me is something many of them welcome is that I am another reflective surface through which the figure of the primitive can convincingly and movingly be made present. However, the form of anthropology supporting contribution to a ritual experience that is vastly more widespread in tourist experience than meeting me personally or thinking about specific other anthropologists is many tourists' intense activities of documentation. Foreigners work through their embodied encounters in the Korowai area in relation to the primitivist template via their intextualizations of these encounters in writing, visual media, online platforms, and object curation amidst and after their travel. Some of these auto-documentary practices tacitly or overtly emulate ethnographic genres. One Dutch couple in their 30s who have been to the Korowai area five times have meticulously recorded details of the making, naming, and use of objects they purchased there. They hope that in the long term, their small personal collection, which they term a museum, might serve as a resource for descendant communities of the people they visit. Efforts to collect word limit lists are also common. And a Czech sculptress who visited the Korowai area with her partner in 2002 includes in a published volume of photographs 20 large format pages of painstakingly chain translated transcripts of interviews with Korowai men on loosely religious subjects, alongside a larger quantity of transcribed interviews with Highland Yali speakers conducted during her other Papua trips. Here, tourists align their tourism not with an anthropologist as an external figure, and maybe not even, and they may not even evoke any overtly labeled persona at all, but they align their travel with specific activities that are the more basic side of what being an anthropologist stands for. A goal of the encounters for the tourists is not only to meet Korowai as a sublime object, but to enact valued processes of selfhood in relation to them, or to relate to them in what is felt to be a commendable way. Genres of ethnographic knowing and documentation are ways of relating through which the idea of the primitive and one's own meaningful encounter with it are further made persuasive. The crude argument I've just made ought to be supplemented by a close look also at ways that tourist ethnographic inquiries toward Korowai or their engagement with anthropological writing uh, lead them to ideas or experiences different from their main stereotypes of the primitive. And that argument should be supplemented by a closer examination of how tourists' para-ethnographic activities are or are not the same as activities and orientations of academic anthropologists, present or past, to deal more squarely with the permeability of the anthropologist-tourist boundary in this area. Instead, though, I'll open up the same complications by jumping to another level of my own ethnographic study of tourists, namely intersections between tourism and anthropology that arise where tourists make their activities reflexively about their tourism and its ideological frames. One example of such meta-tourism is visible in a privately printed travel narrative about a London couple's year-long around-the-world trip, 
that begins with a, a reflection on the, quote, subconscious idea of a return to innocence that motivates many people's visits to, quote, remote groups. They go on to narrate visitors' quick recognition that there is a disparity between, quote, the rather romanticized and idealized notions of the simple life, which often have overtones of Eden and paradise, and the reality of living in harsh environments without modern conveniences, unquote. The couple's tourism to Korowai and other destinations is itself organized in part as an attempted exploration of the tourists' own ideological models and of how travel encounters challenge those models. As we might expect, it is common for specifically for professional tour guides to have understandings of tourism interactions parallel to the ideas I develop in studying tourism or get from reading colleagues' scholarship. Since guides make repeat trips to the Korowai area, have less restricted social and linguistic access to Korowai perspectives, and labor exactly in the major gaps between Korowai and tourist understandings. The same tourist-turned-guide who described her trips as a little more anthropological also described to me a similar unsettling change of awareness she had been through during her final Korowai trip when she became newly aware of the intensity of Korowai witchcraft fears and histories of killing. Previously, she saw in ubiquitous Korowai practices of touch and conviviality an ideal world of social harmony. But after her final trip, she told me, for years I was completely wrong. I think tons of tourists who have gone through there, they have no idea. A Hungarian guide with extensive experience across Indonesia has several times expressed to me the view that lack of communication between Korowai and tourists facilitates rather than hinders the different participants being happy with their meeting a thought that parallels my own modeling of the encounters as structures of working misunderstanding. He backed up the likely truth of this point by mentioning an academic article he once read about a northern Thai destination making the same argument, readily recognizable as a classic early study of primitivist tourism by Eric Cohen. But similar patterns of reflexivity about tourism, social, and ideological organization occur in the experience of tourists themselves, too, especially ones who make repeat trips and put themselves in close collaborative proximity to pop ones they visit. The Dutch couple, whose collecting practices I already mentioned, for example, have been through a difficult reflexive reckoning with their own ideological frameworks. Between 2000 and 2015, they made six trips to the Korowai area near vicinity. When I first met with them at their home in 2014, I was struck by the unusual practical and moral organization of their trips. From their second trip forward, they have not worked with a professional English-speaking guide, but instead have learned Indonesian themselves. They describe the value of their trips as resting in moments of, quote, interaction between themselves and Korowai individuals. We are really in love, the wife remarked of their travel to Papua generally. They economize very strictly in their home lives as well as in their manner of travel to make their Papua trips possible. Their 2015 trip, however, was not joyful. They broadly connected this to Korowai they encountered living mostly in new village (coughs) settlements rather than in dispersed tree houses. When we met after this last trip, the husband described how the daily physical hardships of movement across the landscape had not been rewarded by emotional uplift at the residences where they stayed. He was, quote, ashamed to say it, but the reason for visiting Papua and Korowai is they are, quote, seeking people who are most different from themselves. The recent trip did not match this desire and made the desire itself both visible and uncomfortable. During and after the trip, they were further ashamed by their own joyless response to what they encountered. He said, it's our problem, it's not them. They are the same people, the culture is the same, yet our feeling is different. 
For the first several months at home, they were shocked by their own feelings. Uncharacteristically, they had no enthusiasm for processing the photos, videos, and souvenirs they brought home or for telling others about Papua. Here, tourists' own discourse converges not just with anthropology as an adjunct to the primitive, but with the anthropology of tourism, or at least with my uh, with something like my analytic view that tourism uh, to the Korowai area is organized by a primitivist ideology. Such an idea was an unintentional discovery for the Dutch couple, but some tourists pursue it more actively. One uh, very elaborate intertwining of positions of tourist and anthropologist I have participated in involves a British man in his 30s whom I met in 2009 following a talk at the British Museum that I gave about media representations of treehouses. He has a master's in archaeology, which resulted in a published paper on Neolithic monuments in present-day Scotland. He traces his interest in New Guinea and the idea of the Stone Age to reading National Geographic magazines in a Cornwall cottage, and has made six lengthy trips to Papua, initially with a goal of retracing Heinrich Haar's long trek to a stone axe quarry described in a well-known 1963 travel book. He has never visited the Korowai area, but in his last two trips to other parts of Papua, he traveled with my earlier mentioned Korowai friend Wyap as his guide of a sort. This happened as an accidental consequence of me telling Wyap and the tourist about each other at the time the tourist was leaving for Papua and Wyap was living for a while near Papua's main tourist arrival airport outside Jayapura. One writing project the man hopes to complete based on these trips is a travel narrative conceived as a, quote, lost world adventure story that takes down lost world adventure stories. He would give it the subtitle, Journeys Through Papua and the Western Imagination. He says that at the chain bookstore where he works, quote, we get about five jungle adventures per year. On, a, on his account, these popular books all follow the template of an idea of, quote, civilization being defined through the persona of an adventurer whose character is cast in relief by the lost world setting. The man's own hoped book will begin by seeming to match this template, but then become an account less of places and people visited than of the Western imagination organizing those visits and of the disparities between that imagination's cliches and the actualities of other people's lives. The man also hopes to complete a second writing project, specifically built around the two trips with Wyap, drawing on written texts and audio recordings he asked Wyap to produce during their travels, to produce a parallel diary of their disparate experiences of the same settings. One of the patterns he is interested in is Wyap's situation of himself being a foreigner to places and people he ever visits across Papua, but in different ways than the British traveler. The man understands that this subject troubles the idea of first contact as a rupture in time and consciousness specific to meetings between Papuans and Westerners as supposedly homogeneous blocks. Now, there are many differences between this man's activities and my own ethnographic research, but there are also striking similarities if we focus on the broad concepts of his intended projects. His interest in the Western imagination is parallel to my interest in what I term primitivist ideology, or the primitive as a category circulating with a robust life of its own. Indeed, over the course of our several meetings, the man has adapted ideas from my publications into his discourse, even as I have gleaned many new primitivist literary references from his knowledge of the genre. So, too, the concept of his second project, focused on Wyap, runs parallel to basic ideas of my intended book on tourists and Korowai, such as my aspiration to symmetrically analyze Papuan's perspectives on encounters alongside the perspectives of tourists, and my aspiration to recognize the heterogeneity of social positionalities in Papuan worlds, such that difference is not only a proper 
property, a property of encounters that involve Europeans. The man also holds a tacit theoretical conviction that it is in unfolding events of contingent interaction or representation that one can find evidence of the existence, effects, and failings of different people's ideological models, also a staple of ethnographic methods. One last example I'll sketch in this area of metatourism is a currently unfolding instance of a market-driven media production and my own ongoing fieldwork on it at the offices of a television production company about a mile from this auditorium. In 2016, a film team carried out four successive shoots in the Korowai area around a male presenter named Will Millard under commission from BBC Two for a three-episode series. Uh, BBC commissioned this series following what was regarded as Millard's very successful outing in a 2013 series titled Hunters of the South Seas, the final episode of which focused on the Trobrians. Early in that episode, Will observes the arrival of an enormous cruise ship and Trobrianders' hospitality arrangements for the ship's passengers. And the episode ended in Millard and two Trobrian men returning from a Kula trip to Kitava and Iwa in the film team's speedboat. The new exclusively Korowai-focused series in four separate one-month production uh, was, was shot in four separate one-month production trips to Indonesia. The freelance director who was hired by the production company for this project has a BA in anthropology from Sussex and a master's in visual anthropology from Manchester, where he also sometimes teaches. Uh, for a long time, the working title was A Year in the Treetops, but from the first visit onward, the director has shifted the original Tarzan-like concept of the series toward a focus instead on young Will Millard's dawning awareness of Korowai practices of staging primitivity for tourists. <clears throat> the director adapted to this concept under partial guidance of my own journal articles about Korowai relations with tourists and media professionals, which I provided to him following a phone conversation a year ago when he was leaving on the first trip. This past February, after their final production trip, I started fieldwork on the editing process of the film, which is now nearing completion. Certain statements I make during the editing room fieldwork are having effects on details of the final film subtitles, voiceover commentary, and visual editing. To the degree the commissioning executives at BBC Two end up accepting the shape which the independent production company has currently given the three episodes, the series will in effect be a broadcast entertainment version of Cannibal Tours. That is, it will be a reflexive expose of the primitivist tourism and media apparatus itself, such as the commissioning by film crews of ridiculously high canopy-level houses that nobody would actually live in. The, the series culminates in severe deterioration of the presenter's relations with a specific Korowai man over issues of payment and the departure of the film team from the Korowai area almost as soon as they arrive for their fourth and final visit due to this man's armed threats, a bigger version of the same issues of wealth inequality and transactional access uh, that I earlier introduced through Korowai discourse about my own fieldwork presence. It would be valuable to go into finer details about these kinds of involutions between tourism and my research about it, as well as finer details from ethnographic levels touched on earlier in the lecture and other patterns I've entirely skipped. But I'll close now by widening out to some broader themes, starting from the main force of the meta-tourism examples just outlined. Another anthropological near-truism these examples raise is that while identity categories might circulate in robustly naturalized ways, 
people also can make the collectively fictive aspects of those categories a focus of attention. Metatourism also illustrates, again, that categorization is relationally performative and that intercategory boundaries shift with changes in broader evaluative problems under attention. When tourists or media professionals take their own tourism-motivating ideologies as a focus, what the figure of the anthropologist is and what the desired lines between anthropologist and tourist are have changed somewhat. However, an obvious way to account for this shift of tourism to inquiry about its own categories and the related shifts in tourism-anthropology alignment is to note that these changes might just be the further working out of tourism's core logic of an omnivorous hunger for innovating an industrialized, commodified experience of access to new, absorbable, extra-market raw materials. This is the same treadmill dynamic that has led tourism to make Korowai specifically a high-value destination by comparison to other primitivist destinations felt to be not quite so ultimate. The system cannibalistically turns even to staging the authentic revelation of a backstage behind tourism's own appearances. That revelation is that the tourist experience of the backstage of all humanity is an inauthentic projection of tourists' own primitivist ideology. Even inauthenticity can be marketed as an object of authentic revelation. That type of account strikes me as importantly true, but also as foreclosing important questions. One of my doubts is a version of my earlier image of the essentialization of an essentialization. A pernicious quality of exoticism, or of the ideology of civilized and primitive, is that they are difficult to exit by frontwards opposition alone, because you become what you oppose. Blunt anti-exoticism alone often covertly universalizes the positionality from which anti-exoticist critique is leveraged, quietly exoticizing much that exists to being outside that universal and thus not imaginable or needing inquiry. The theory of metatourism just sketched has a similar ring if universalized. Here, the anti-exoticist critique falls not on the tourist image of Korowai, but on their image of themselves and their tourism activity, and says that they have access to nothing outside misrecognition of their own projected shadows. A corresponding ethnographic basis for unease with full reduction of metatourism to that account is that it doesn't reckon very much with metatourists' own consciousness of themselves and their practice as divided or internally awkward. The media professionals professionals I'm studying, for example, are explicit about their industry's conflicting values of entertainment and education. They are reflexive about the fractured composition of audiences with respect to interest in educational content, even when packaged in the required entertaining mold of character and story. And they are quite reflexive about editorial compromises involved in diverse small visual and verbal choices across which they oscillate equivocally between representations conforming to an unreconstructed primitivist imaginary and representations putting such an imaginary under scrutiny. Often they refer to small but to them much desired portions of education-focused elements in the television text as, quote, anthropology, or as, quote, a thought. If media professionals or regular tourists are in this kind of way aware of themselves as moving between different forms of consciousness around tourism, probably this ought to be given some consideration in an anthropological model as well. So, too, it does intuitively seem like there's something a bit different about tourism in which the figure of an anthropologist is attractive as a stereotypic stereotypic adjunct to the figure of the primitive and tourism in which the figure of an anthropologist is attractive as an adjunct to the figure of tourism itself. An anthropologist now looks like a sounding board or resource for investigating one's own collectively acquired ideology of the primitive and its repercussions for actual relations with those visited. 
On the other hand, while the ethnographic attention I've given to meta-tourists here is out of proportion with their numbers, these exceptional cases can easily be read as offering exaggerated versions of more subdued forms of consciousness centrally shared across the entire tourist population. When I earlier discussed mainstream tourist attraction to anthropology, I focused on how anthropology circulates as a robust spectral stereotype and how that figure is an adjunct in turn to the fundamental specter of the primitive. But in, even in that area of the ethnography, there's a third specter, the category tourist, as it exists robustly for tourists themselves, bearing stigma. The figure of tourists as a bad moral type was not invented by academics, but is endemic across tourism practicing societies. The attraction of anthropology as making tourism better is one small indication of tourism's pervasive organization as awkward to itself and seeking distinction from its own imagined worst aspects. Another index of that pattern is that a common question tourists ask me as anthropologists is whether tourism is good or bad for Korowai. Integral to the tourism is feeling uncertain about its ethical character and deliberating about how or whether to proceed. There is much ambivalent shimmer to tourist positionalities in relation to shifting and subdividing constellations of tourist anthropologists and visited people, but generally unfolding through those constellations is an effort of evaluative sorting out and of trying to be different from others or even from oneself. This tourism internal critical antipathy to the stigmatized category of tourism itself seems continuous in turn with tourism's original constituting idea of a break with normal life. In the case of the tourism I study, this break is symbolized and carried by the figure of primitive humanity. I do not know whether the robust category of the primitive or the robust category of tourism as bad are entirely hermetic and reproducing of places tourists already live, or whether these modes of tourist consciousness of their own historical condition do amount to something worth calling a break. But these modes of consciousness do seem to imply an inkling of what a critical break would be. From within that analytic impasse, I'm attracted to one last near-truism about categories that has also been at play across this lecture's ethnography. While I've spoken of truisms, that certain patterns are well-established anthropological themes does not mean they are mutually consistent. There are obvious contradictions between the pattern that identity categories exist robustly with a life of their own for the categorizers and other patterns I've noted, such as that categorizing frameworks are shifting, situational, stepping stones of inquiry, revisable, the focus of citation, critique, or inquiry. One way to imagine how these opposite things could be true in close proximity to each other, though, could be the further anthropological truism that categories are characterized by a duality of both revealing and hiding. An icon, a fetish, an ideology, perhaps even a generalization, presents a surface that allows attention, perception, and knowledge, but also indexes and cloaks a large network of premises, conditions, and disallowed alternative knowledges. If this awkward duality of revealing and hiding tends to be normal to categories or certain types of them, then maybe that's also how a category's robustness is constantly fostering on its periphery, forms of tacit investigation, repression, or revelation of its own deceptiveness, if not fostering an actual break. If I may end with a gesture toward one further problem that this lecture's material has raised, though not taken far, How does the pattern of categories being awkward to themselves and their conditions of use, being dual in that kind of way I've just sketched, look if we widen out to include Korowai perspectives? 
By putting some Korowai patterns alongside tourist ones tonight, I tried partly to displace the bauble of tourist primitivism and anthropologist figural, figural place in it, situating that attention-drawing element in a much wider kaleidoscopic network of ways different anthropological and tourism positionalities interact. A striking commonality across the ethnographic areas I've sampled is that Korowai and tourists focus their attention on roughly the same material conditions of Korowai separation from market-generated consumer wealth, which tourists embody. But Korowai and tourists are having quite different dreams and conversations about that Korowai position on the edge of market and state formations. Korowai think tourism and an anthropologist in it are about getting transactional access to consumer culture, and tourists think tourism and an anthropologist in it are about getting out of it. In a different talk, I could give some evidence that the inequality Korowai experience in relation to tourists and their motives and techniques for working on that inequality are not exactly the same understandings that tourists or other market-central people might carry or expect of others. In any case, I've suggested in this talk that what the interplay of anthropological and tourism positionalities in primitivist tourism most importantly points toward is the centrality of identity categories as markers through the surfaces and shadows of which the encounter participants feel they might know something about their historical condition. When a constellation of primitivist tourists, anthropologists, and visited people throws up personae or alignments of them evoking discomfort or dismay, there are broader structural situations in the shadows that are likely the more basic problem that those personalistic markers seem to suggest. Thank you.